This sermon this morning may be a surprise to you as we find ourselves in Luke chapter 15. And I want to let you know that as I, uh, this was something that had grown in me uh, since early November at the pastor's conference that I was at and I was able to meet. I think I, we prayed for uh, Stanmore Baptist Church in Australia, having been able to meet their pastor, Pastor Mike Prodilagad. Or Prodilagad. Anyways, I I mentioned it to him that man, that's a mouthful. As I experienced that this morning, and he uh, began to talk to me about what is the definition of prodigal, and and in just a moment we'll speak about that. But that grew in me a, a thought about this parable and how it could be preached, and especially preached on this day, on Christmas Day. December 25th, 2022, considering it landing upon the Lord's Day. The other thing we can, can consider about surprises as we look at this morning, what's commonly known as the prodigal son, is that parables and surprises. And parables often have surprise endings, especially to the original audience, it was intended to be a surprise. The end was something unexpected. We see that in the Good Samaritan, that all the people that, that passed by the person who had been robbed and beaten and left for dead, it was the Samaritan that came and offered aid. We see it in our passage this morning where between two sons, one diligent and hardworking and one licentious and, and wayward, what is the surprise ending? One is invited in and one is excluded. So parables can be surprises or there are surprises in the parable. And this parable this morning, as I said, is of, of no exception. The parable of the prodigal son has its own surprises. And one of the surprises to me was there are actually two definitions of prodigal. And the first one, we know well, it usually means spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wasteful and extravagant. It comes largely from this text. The word um, loose living here in the NASB is the word uh, that we get prodigal from eventually. It's not, it's not a transliteration of the Greek. The Greek doesn't include prodigal, but somewhere in the Latin, it's translated like prodigal. And so we get that idea. But there's a second definition of prodigal that actually means, or that, can that it can actually mean having or giving something on a lavish scale. So you might be surprised this morning to see or hear that we have that we will be using both definitions of prodigal this morning for in our passage there are two prodigals so follow along as i read for us luke chapter 15 and i'll read the whole parable beginning in verse 11 through verse 32 the word of the lord says and he said speaking of christ a man had two sons the younger of them said to his father father give me the share of the estate that falls to me so he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. 
and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will give up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him and said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older brother was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered him and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you, and I've never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him for help again this morning. Oh Lord, we ask your help this morning to understand these words of parable. We thank you that you give us the blessing of your word and the mysteries contained. We thank you that you've also given us your spirit and you have given us Christ, that by them we may understand them and know that you are God and there is none other beside you. Help us this morning to do just that. And we ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, this morning... We'll look at this parable under three headings. We'll look at the scope. We'll look at the elements. And we'll look at the drama. So we'll look at the scope, the elements, and the drama. For the scope, uh, the, as, a, as a short word or a small word on the scope, we'll, we need to understand the use of parables and then what is contained in this parable as we as the scope of it for the use of parables there are really two reasons that parables are used in scripture and parables are all throughout scripture for if you remember Nathan comes to sinning David with a parable about two landowners one wealthy and one not so wealthy one containing thousands of sheep and one only having one, and then he takes the one sheep from the impoverished landowner and 
it's, it was supposed to be a parable to David to reveal something to him, to reveal his sin, to, re, to, to reveal to David what he had done wrong. And it was given to him uh, in order so that David might be convicted in his heart and repent to God. And it was used in such a way effectually by the Spirit of God. We also find that the parable specifically of the New Testament that Christ brings was to bring new revelation. He would speak about the kingdom through parable. And so he's trying to tell them something new or something fulfilled from the Old Covenant or the Old Testament in Christ, in his incarnation, in his life and eventual death, burial, and resurrection. And so the use of parables is to give new revelation in that way. And then finally, the reason why they're couched in stories and metaphors and similes and all that type of symbolic language is that it was to conceal the meaning to those outside the kingdom. That the parables were something to conceal from those who had not been given eyes to see and ears to hear. For we would see in other parables, the I think the sower is one specifically, that the disciples come to Christ and say, tell us what you meant. And Christ didn't say, you figure it out. He said, no, let me tell you who these, what the sower is. Let me tell you the ground and the heart and, and, and the word of God. And so we see this morning that parables have a concealed meaning to those outside the kingdom. So they're to be received in faith. But they're also to give revelation beyond what was happening then. And so we may see, or not beyond what was happening, but, but in the sense of uh, beyond the mere words that were spoken. And so that brings us to the elements of this parable. The elements, there, there's also uh, chapters and pages and pages written on just this parable and how many elements are involved and, and the drama that ensues. We're just going to take a sliver of them this morning. And so we're going to see uh, these elements in four, uh, we're going to look at three of these elements. The first one is is apparent to us is the two sons that there was a man who had two sons we'll we'll get to the man or the father next but the two sons come first in my order in my sermon there was an older son and a younger son the older son was the rightful heir to uh the lion's share of the inheritance and the younger son would have, would have been given something less. And uh, it was something to the effect of two-thirds and one-third of some sort. And so the elder son, as we see, is the one who in the end of our parable is excluded from the feast. He excludes himself from the feast because of a certain attitude he had adopted over the years or approached his father with. And that was an attitude of self-righteousness. Because he, in his mind, thought that he had obeyed his father in all ways. I have never neglected a command of yours. Except for one, at the very least, known to us. 
one, all have fallen short before the glory of God. So he's probably certainly dishonored his father in some way in his life. But for uh, what's been revealed specifically to us and probably revealed more of his heart in the previous obeying of the commands is that he didn't follow his father into the house to celebrate the reception of the younger son. That was one thing he neglected to do in honor of his father. And so the elder son is, uh, is really the Pharisees and scribes. We see that um, as it related to the scope of it, as I've failed to mention, that in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15, where Christ begins uh, these three uh, triplet of, par- of parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, we see in verse 1, not all, now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so then he told them this parable. He talks about the lost sheep. And then he says, or, in other words, in like manner, he talks about a lost coin. And finally he says, and he said, a man had two sons. And he brings here into their view that they, the scribes and the Pharisees, are the elder son. More generally, the Jews can be met by this, as as the unbelieving Jews can be met by this. And then, actually, the broadest way would be all self-righteous persons that were among them and among us today those that consider themselves worthy of God's blessing, deserving of his good things, those that that take for granted the grace and mercy that we receive every day because of Christ. And they say, I am not like a sinner like them. The younger son, that second son, are very clear that included in it is not just the tax collectors and sinners here, or not just tax, tax collectors, but all sinners. All sinners are included. And by way of that, as they were excluded from the good things of God, excluded and without hope, as we read in Ephesians, or as I taught in Ephesians, what, is, what it was written in Ephesians, is the Gentiles. So the Gentiles and sinners of all ages are included there in the younger. And we, we see that because the younger one, or the older one, was said to have always been with the Father, and all that is mine is yours. In the Old Covenant, with the Jews were given the oracles of God. All of God's promises were first given to the Jews. And it was the Gentiles that were viewed as the sinners the ones outside of God's covenant. But here Christ, in that intention of giving new revelation, is saying, no, these are going to be included in the kingdom of God. And those that stand opposed to grace, that stand opposed to justification, ultimately justification by faith alone, will be excluded from the kingdom. And so that first element is two sons. The, other, the next element is the father or the man here. The younger said to his father, the father of the two sons. There are 
many as there's there are many different understandings of the two sons which I didn't go over there are there are some uh, there's less dis misunderstanding as who the father is some though uh, confine the father to mean just that God the father everybody agrees that God is involved in this man but there is a different understanding of of what person of the of the Godhead is involved and so some limit it to just God the Father. I believe that it's the triune God is represented here. And it's the triune God who acts in one divine will to reconcile sinners. And so we're going to see the divine missions of the Godhead when the drama is explained. And when obviously within these divine missions we're going to pause and consider the coming of the Son in the likeness of man. Finally, the last element that I've chosen to highlight this morning is the house, the house of servants. So are the, the household servants who come and do what? They come and provide the good things of the kingdom to the younger son, those gifted by God to dispense his means of grace are represented here in the servants. And so we'll see that connection as it relates to the good things given in the drama. And that does bring us to the drama as we've taken a moment to look at just some of the elements of this parable. Let's look at the drama as it ensues. And again, we can't cover every point and turn in the story, but we'll cover just a few of them. The first one is the son's request to the father to receive his inheritance early. Many have commented, and I think rightfully so, is that the younger son comes to the father and says, I wish you were dead and I had what you have. But I think even more so, as one person put it, it says that the son desired to be Lord of himself. I no longer want to be under you. I want to be Lord of myself. In the end, only one son saw that they could not be their own Lord. It was, it's interesting to consider the elder son, in the end, was the one who held on to that. That he was, a, he was the Lord of himself. That he had obeyed all the commands of the Father. He thought in, in his outward obedience that he was conforming to God or to the Father all that he desired or all that was required of him only to find out that he had not really served the Father at all, but he was only serving himself. So this request is of, of immense importance as it relates to the mindsets of both the younger son and the older son, both in their own expression, showing themselves desire to be Lord of themselves and only one giving up of that. And then that comes by way of the next element of the drama in the traveling and squandering of the younger son. He receives this inheritance and it says that he receives this inheritance and what's interesting is that it says not many days later. So he held on to this inheritance in the household somehow, but then as he held it, not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country and there he squandered his estate with loose living here we see 
that sin always takes a ton when only suggesting an ounce. Sin wants us to believe, or, or the world, or the evil one, or our flesh wants us to believe that it's only a little bit of deviation. It's only, it's only a, a sidestep. You'll get back on track, or whatever it is, you'll get, it's fine. It's just a little sin. For the younger son, he may have believed that it, was, it wasn't much to ask of his inheritance and live in his house. I want my inheritance and I'll live in the house. But his flesh wanted more. Satan desired to have him. And so where sin promises to only take an ounce, you'll find that it will want the whole ton and these are the deceitful desires, desires that are mentioned in Ephesians chapter 4 that, capture us, that have captured us all in our old nature and continue to tempt us to be captured by even in our new nature as we do battle, spiritual battle, not of flesh and blood, but of powers and principalities. Consider the temptation of sin and its suggestion that it's only just this once, it's only just a little, a little folding of hands, as the proverb says. Let us be wary or let us be concerned with sin's deceitfulness as we see it in the traveling and squandering that took place in the younger son. And then he finds himself in, that, in the next point of drama is in a dire situation. Not only did he have money, but then he, he loses all his belongings or all of his wealth because a severe famine occurred. And he began to be impoverished and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. No longer under the care of his father, no longer under the watchful eye where even in his father's house there may have been a way for him to regain his position or something of the sort. But here he has to hire himself out to a citizen of another country. And there are many commenters that identified that citizen as the devil himself. Others recognized it as maybe just other sinful people, that he just gave himself completely over to sin in that way. And certainly he receives the uh, right consequences of that decision because no longer does he have stand on his own self, but he found, finds himself not being Lord of himself, but being a servant of another and not just of, of another, but somebody who was a poor master, a harsh master, for he sends him out to feed the swine, one of the lowest positions available, where we see that one commentator observes that the more pleasure we find in sin, the more displeasure it works. Consider that. The more pleasure we find in sin, the more displeasure it works. It's kind of like digging a hole at the beach. You dig a hole, and the more you dig, the more the sand comes in to the point that all it takes is one calamity, the crashing of a wave, and you don't have a hole anymore. 
And so the more pleasure we find in sin, the more displeasure it works. It seems delightful thing to you to follow your lusts, your evil ways. But the more you sin, the more you increase your guilt. And guilt is but a sword to cut the throat of your sinful pleasures. The world wants to say that it is the persecution of the religious upon the licentiousness of people or the lustful and evil living that takes place in this world that has caused them to go and take their own lives. But I believe that it's their guilt that has cut their throat that the things that pleased them only pr pr produced more displeasure in their life. If you think you can have more joy and gladness outside of following Christ and his ways, you are being deceived by the evil one and your own flesh and the world. For the more you pursue after it, the more displeasure you will find. Which brings us to our next point of the drama because the son seeing his state makes a resolution to himself he says that he, it says he can't, comes to his senses and in in this way we see the beginning of the lord drawing the son back to himself because he comes to his senses but he doesn't come fully to his senses does he he considers the hired men of his father's house and none of them were dying of hunger. So he considers his father to be a good master, a rightful observation, but not considering his father to be a father, but a master. And he says, I will go and I will confess my sin and I will say, I'm not worthy to be your son. So make me a hired man. Make me a servant. And so he gets up to go back to his father. Benjamin Keach helpfully observes. He says, because mankind are born under a covenant of works, and so they think they must be justified and saved by doing, and not in a way of believing, nay, and that doing a little at last will serve, though they do but cry, Lord, have mercy upon them, miserable sinners, is sufficient especially if they can but shed a few tears or a little reform in their lives. This is the mindset, the initial mindset of the younger son, though we can trace the, if, if we use this as an analogy of, of, of the Lord saving a sinner, we can say that the father was drawing him, yet his first response to the drawing of the father was according to his old nature, that broken covenant of work. So I will go and I will work. For the blessings of my father. And that will be enough. Consider he thinks that his service will be enough and suitable. Again, it, this resolution of the son is more uh, reflecting of the, this broken covenant of works than of the covenant of grace, which we will see here now. Because the next point of emphasis that I see in this drama is the watching and seeing from afar the father. The father sees from afar. He was still a long way off in verse 20, and his father saw him and felt compassion on him. Here begins what I think is this analogy or this great drama of the divine missions of the Godhead. 
Here an analogy of our great and merciful Lord's patience with sinners. For to be seeing him afar off, he had to be watching for him. That God is like a watchman looking for weary travelers and when seeing them afar off, having compassion and love towards them. Keach again, the Father and the Son have equal love and pity towards perishing sinners. What the Son does, the Father does, and the Holy Ghost does also. But here I, I, we can make, I will make a distinction of the divine mission of the Father to love and seek the reconciliation of sinners. We certainly see that in the Son. But in a distinct way, according to uh, his uh, the procession or the taxonomy of the Godhead where the Father is begotten of none and the Son is eternally begotten of the Father and the Spirit proceeding from both the Father and the Son. And so it is fitting for the Son then, the person of the Son, to terminate in human form, incarnating, and be the one seen running to the Son. The next point of drama is the running to the Son. Here we see God in the Son coming to sinners. For the Father runs out. He runs out. The Son, the, the divine person of the Son runs out. And when through Him He descends from heaven and comes down on earth with me, the Son says, is He who sent me, the Father. We know those words of Christ. He fell upon his neck. He fell when through Christ and the whole divinity came down as ours and rested in human nature. Consider what consistency, what, what hand in glove it is to be here this morning on Christmas Day to worship Christ, to worship God, to celebrate the redemption of Christ, remembering his resurrection, remembering his death, and resurrection, but then to consider this morning the incarnation and to think that there's not anything inconsistent about being here, anything unnecessary about it. If we miss that, we miss the meaning of anything we've ever said Christmas is about. And so we see the Son, or the Father, running to the Son, and in that we can see the condescension of the person of the Son in the incarnation, in his humiliation. Matthew Barrett, in his book, None Greater, makes this observation. He says, Peace? Have we not sinned against an infinite God? Yes. But the infinite one himself has stepped out of the heavens to pay for your sin. Something he alone can do. The eternal son of God took the form of a servant. Here in the parable, he takes the form of the son because he falls upon him. The son falls to the ground. The father takes his position. Takes his humiliation. For instead of beating the son, chiding the son, he falls into his form. So the eternal Son of God took the form of a servant. The image of the invisible God by whom all things were created and in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell has reconciled to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
Sin against an infinite God cannot be atoned for by a Savior who has emptied himself of his divine attributes. No, it is his divine attributes that qualify him to make atonement in the first place. Sin against an infinite God can only be met only by a Savior who is himself deity and all the perfections identical with that deity in infinite measure. And so we see that as the Father runs to the Son, coming to Him, stooping to Him, to do what? To bring Him home, to reconcile Himself, to reconcile the Son to Himself. We see in this next point of drama that the, the Father runs to the Son, and He, as I said, He doesn't come with the rod of discipline. He doesn't come with his wrath. He comes with grace and kindness and affection. For he falls upon him and kisses him on the neck. Embracing him and kissing him. The, these past tense words here don't convey the continualness of the action. The, the, the embrace is a full embrace and lasting embrace. The kissing is affectionate kissing and lasting kissing. And so here we see the effectual work of the Spirit, whereupon indwelling the believer, the divine affections of the Lord are experienced in the sinner. Paul says in Romans 5, 5, that the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This falling, embracing, and kissing is a picture to us of the effectual work of the indwelling of the Spirit whereby we are united to Christ and whereby we experience the love of the Father. But that's not where it ends. The drama continues and there are just two more elements that I have here. The next one being the preparation for return. For the son was not fit to come home yet. He was not fit to come home. Because the father says to his slaves or his servants, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. First the robe and then the ring. Because of the allusion to marriage. The wedding garment is ever put on before the wedding ring. The robe, the ring, and the sandals. The imputed righteousness of Christ. The betrothal to the Son. Being shod with the gospel shoes. For these things were owned by the Father. They were brought to the Son. And it, the Son couldn't even put them on Himself. He doesn't hand them to the Son. No, the Father, in His uh, mastery of His house, hires servants, or has hired servants, dispense these good things to this sinner. The Lord of all in wisdom thinks fit to confer and dispense grace by the ministry of servants. 
that so the use of means should always accompany the dependence on his power. Sometimes we may consider we don't need this place and we don't need these things because we think we can just take care of it ourselves in our own individual time. And this certainly would not be to discourage that individual time where you attend to those means of grace available to you. But consider here that the dispensing of these gifts come by the hands of servants. The father could have done it himself. The father could have put the robe on, on, on the son, could have given him the ring and the, and the sandals. But no, he ordains that servants would do it for the good of the son so that he would ever be dependent on the power of the father. So that we would not rest in our own ability. That we would trust in the goodness and ordaining of the ways and means that the Lord has provided. Finally, the last element of the drama is the feast. Where the son was wedded to the lust and passions of the flesh of his former life. Now by the grace and mercy and love of the father is brought into a betrothal with the one where the blessing can be enjoyed to a contented heart. He's brought into this feast where the fattened calf, saved for the day of a celebration that is equivalent to a wedding feast. He's clothed and now he's fed. He's blessed with the contented heart of the good things of his father's house and he's given all that he has needed. And so we may see what we have here this morning in the ordinary means of grace, what we will partake in in the Lord's Supper, that we proclaim his death until he comes again, when our faith shall be sight, when we will feast with the son, with the bridegroom. Consider in closing this hymn, which I'm sure began as a poem. From heaven high, I come to you. I bring you tidings good and new. Glad tidings of great joy I bring, whereof I now will say and sing. To you this night is born a child of Mary chosen virgin mild. This little child of lowly birth shall be the joy of all the earth. This is the Christ, our God and Lord, who in all need shall aid afford. He will himself your savior be from all your sins to set you free. These are the tokens ye shall mark, the swaddling cloths and manger dark. There ye shall find the infant laid by whom the heavens and earth were made. Now let us all with gladsome cheer go with the shepherds and draw near to see the precious gift of God who hath his own dear son bestowed. Welcome to earth, thou noble guest, through whom the sinful world is blessed. In my distress, thou comest to me. What thanks shall I return to thee? Let us pray. O oh Lord, what great wonder and delight we have in seeing your word open to us that we may see with fresh eyes, the beauty of your redemption. 
that we were carried along by our lusts and passions have now been brought near, have been reconciled through Christ. Oh, what joy we have to consider this incarnation, this lowly living and lowly birth, the suffering of our Lord, so that we may gain festal clothes, that we may be brought into new life, that we may partake of this wedding feast. Help us, Lord, to set this day apart for your good things, trusting that they come to us by your good and perfect purposes. We thank you, Lord, and we ask these things in your name. Amen.